3: This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes.
0: All right. Here I go. This is a Manhattan-bound
2: B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap.
0: Welcome to Skylines, the City Metric Podcast. I'm Stephanie.
1: And I'm John. And this week we're talking about the Olympics and regeneration.
0: In the olden
2: days, there were tyre shops, there were some knocking shops and some very dodgy pubs. In
4: 1983, the idea of living in an area as isolated and industrial as Nine Elms was laughed at. It's
0: the Olympics!
4: Is that you you starting? That's me starting. Yeah.
1: Yeah, we were having some debate about how we were going to start this. I was thinking of reading out those Onion headlines that say things like, you know... Opening ceremony lasts for six days in desperate attempt to... to anyway. Um,
0: we could have gone with Ready, Set, Go, Starting Gun.
1: Yeah, maybe maybe we should have gone with... It's got a bit meta now, maybe
0: we Welcome to our lukewarm Olympians podcast.
1: Yeah. I mean, we do have a fundamental pretty structural problem here which is that i really don't do sport i mean this is not a surprise to anyone this a picture of me but i'm really i just i don't get it i'm missing the bit of the, the brain that means you can i just, it's, you know those magic eye diagrams where like you know there's always some people who just couldn't do it and i'm like that with sport i just stare at it and i just don't see what everyone else sees
0: did you enjoy the 2012 olympics in london
1: though uh, yeah i mean kind of i think what was really interesting about that is the way that until we got there everyone thought it was going to be a complete disaster i mean that was almost the official line is like the government was putting out these leaflets say oh you don't just get out of london while you still can um and like we got a leaflet through the door from transport from london telling us to avoid king's cross for the duration of the olympics which was difficult because it came through the door of our flat in king's cross but the minute it started suddenly everyone was in a really good mood for three weeks it's uh, so, so, so uncharacteristic for London that just suddenly everyone was really happy and really pleased with it all. So I kind of like that aspect of it. You're, do, giving, you're giving me a look like you don't, like you disagree with this.
0: Well, no, because I w- I wasn't in London for the 2012 Olympics. I was I'd moved to London, but I was away in Switzerland. And basically, what happened is every few weeks a Swiss person would come up to me and go, "I was just in the city you live in. It was great." Mm-hmm. And I go, "Okay." thank you I, I don't know I'm here did but. you
1: did you feel like you missed out on something? Uh,
0: yeah, I think so. I think so well because P- Londoners keep telling me stories like this, but the re- the reason I'm giving you that look is that I don't know how you would cope with three weeks of everyone being cheerful
1: <laughs> I, I, I I found that easier to cope with than the than the the sports stuff, and also it was like okay, one of the reasons I was always quite enthusiastic about the Olympics is that. It happened in an area of East London, Stratford, which um, is not, its that's the side of town I grew up on. Um, and, you know, it, it, I got to see a place I knew quite well completely change over the course of 10 years. And you know, there's all sorts of debate about, well, not really debate, it's very obvious that we massively paid too far, far too much to, to regenerate a relatively small patch of East London. But one of the things the London Olympics did very well is that, it did actually regenerate it. Like it's not the London legacy at least is a whole new area of the city that is is now quite well used. And that's not that's not always the case.
0: So what are the other because I moved to London after Well, I moved to London right before the Olympics and then I skipped the Olympics. So I came you, back you, kind you of you
1: took the government's advice basically. You got the hell out of Dodge.
0: So. Yeah, well I or I just timed it timed it very badly. Um mm-hmm. but I didn't kind of see that before and after. So is is it markedly different to Olympic legacies elsewhere because I feel like every year in the Olympic opening so many rolls round we get all these pictures of you know abandoned swimming pools in Athens and crumbling stadiums across Central Europe and
1: yeah I mean I mean London's sort of in the the, the the upper half of the pack I think it's not it's not one of the ones that everyone's pointing to and going wow this is this is an amazing legacy but it's it's definitely not a disaster it went quite well even if it was probably overpriced the the city that I think is commonly agreed to have the the best olympic legacy is definitely barcelona which hosted the summer games in 1992 and what the city got right was it basically used it as a lever to fund all these big infrastructure projects it wanted to anyway so barcelona despite being the largest city on the mediterranean coast sort of ignored the fact that it had a coastline for for you know decades or centuries so what? What one of the things they did in the games? They completely renovated the old port area, which was just derelict warehouses, and they uh, replaced it with like you know a beach and a broadwalk and 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 you know really take advantage of the fact that it is this amazing cultural city that also happens to have this amazing bit of coastline. They had to import sand and all that stuff. But but basically, what they got right was they used the Olympics as an excuse to do a bunch of stuff they wanted to do anyway. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got Athens. Where, I mean, I don't know what the hell the Athens government were thinking, but they basically spent all the money on building new Olympic facilities, like actual sporting facilities, miles and miles from anywhere. And oddly enough, once the games have passed on, there's not really, you know, you don't have endless international Olympic festivals popping up every six months or so. It's all just derelict. And those are the pictures we see come around every couple of years. Because it's always, I mean, you know, to be blunt about it, there's some quite easy traffic in like oh hey here's a picture of a dead bird corpse rotting in the olympic swimming pool in athens and you know people love that stuff
0: i can i can see why the um why the summer of cheerfulness might have come as a surprise to you john um so is it so is it mostly a case of clever use of geography then is that what you need to do if you want to ensure a good olympic legacy for your city
1: i mean i think that's definitely Part of it, I mean, one of the reasons Barcelona worked so well is because it was this area right next to the the, the downtown in the central business district that had just never been used properly because it was a bit industrial and a bit abandoned. So um, they, they put a motorway underground, basically, so it, it was impossible to walk from uh, the bottom of the, the Ramblas to, to the coast. Um, but that was it meant there was this huge area of land that just sat there that they just never used before, so you could renovate it. And again, with London, it's the, the Stratford area is kind of surrounded by inner city, but it was this kind of industrial wasteland. But next to a, a station with like you know six or seven different railway lines going through it, so so geography is definitely a big factor. But I think actually it's planning as much as anything else.
0: So is it a case of infrastructure? Because obviously Barcelona is a compact walkable city. Stratford, you need those kind of railway lines. You know, it's it's also about can you just get people to where the Olympics are, I'm guessing.
1: Uh, Yeah, I think, like, the the point I'm reaching for is both Barcelona and London, the Olympics happened in an area that if there is a reason to go there, people will go there. Um, And where it feels like Athens went wrong is they just built a whole load of facilities miles out of anywhere, so if there isn't a sporting event going on, then why the hell are you ever going to go to this place? I think there's an argument that this is a very expensive way of doing regeneration, though. I mean, like, a lot of the Stratford stuff was going to happen anyway and they just kind of accelerated it for the Olympics so I think there's there's always a value for money question over whether this is really a sensible way of, of funding your new uh, light rail extension or whatever it is
0: And that's an interesting question if you compare it to something like the City for Culture because I know when we held the Olympics in London it was very much if you're going to do it in you know, in the UK you have to do it in in london nothing else is going to be acceptable to the international audience
1: i mean that sounds slightly like it might be propaganda put about by you know people who live in london but
0: are you admitting I, to something no, yeah, John, no, is this, no, is this no. a
1: confession no i've always been like i've always been an advocate of investing far more in the rest of the country like i, I spend a lot of time looking at maps of manchester MetroLink too which i get very excited by oh <laughs> trams the second city crossing but,
0: but 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 I remember that kind of being a, an argument whether or not that is something that was true maybe everyone would have loved to go to Hull for the first time ever um I
1: mean but this has definitely been a problem there have been bids to host these various international competitions like the Olympics the Commonwealth Games in other UK cities like Manchester or didn't Glasgow. Glasgow do the Commonwealth Games I think Games. Glasgow did yeah. the Commonwealth Games but the fact that I I wasn't certain of that is, is kind of a helpful reminder that there wasn't the same jamboree about it that we got with the London Olympics where it was kind of made into a national event which I really think says something about the sort of London centrism of our, our national political culture that stuff that happens in London is rammed down everyone else's throats in a way that stuff that happens in Glasgow or Manchester is
0: Well, maybe that's something you can address I'm working on it, working <laughs> on it.
2: This is a Brooklyn-bound A-Express train The next stop is Dykeman Street This is a 125th Street Bound A Express Train. The next stop is 59th Street, Columbus Circle.
1: So we're now joined by somebody who knows a lot about London's Olympic Park, having worked there for a while, and also about cultural-led regeneration more broadly, and to whom I happen to be married. Hello. Hello, Sarah. How are you?
2: I am well. Did you put the cat out?
1: I wish we had a cat. We
2: don't have a cat. We don't
1: have a cat. We should we, we should get... Anyway, today we are going to talk about the Olympic Park. So, you know, you, like me, are an East Londoner yep. in origin. What was there before they built London's Olympic Park? What did it look like?
2: Stratford was home to London, in fact, I believe Europe's largest fridge mountain. That's now on, the, uh, on Stadium Island in the middle of the new Olympic Park.
1: So a literal mountain, a of, mountain fridges.
2: of fridges. Be, okay. Yeah, if you can try and imagine the landscape of the Lower Lee Valley, it was a mix of industrial wasteland and post-industrial wasteland. And that's not really to do it a disservice. If we go take a little journey down Carpenters Road, which people might remember from uh, watching the 2012 Olympics, you may remember the the World's Largest McDonald's, that was at one end of Carpenters Road, and Stratford International Station at the other end. In the olden days, it was mainly, there were... Uh, tire shops. There were scrap. Uh, there was uh, a lot of scrap yards. There was knocking shops and some very dodgy pubs. There were big t- piles of tires. There were occasional tire fire. It was mainly two thousand, yeah, two thousand cubic kilometers of, of contaminated soil, which was then removed from the park as part of the process of turning into the Olympic Park.
1: So it was a, a real destination then, a the kind of place you'd spend your holidays?
2: It depended. If you wanted to, you know, smoke some crack or get, you know, felt up on a, there wasn't even really a park bench, but there were definitely places where one could go to solicit um, or be solicited. Um, but yeah, that was the, the main purpose of Carpenters Road.
1: Stratford is on the line, the train line that used to get into town, and I always felt like it was just like this hole in the landscape. You didn't even sort of... It's not that you were aware of this blank space. It's just you never thought of what was there because it was so, so empty. Now there's actual stuff there.
2: There is. And what the reason there wasn't much stuff there was because of all the... Because of the railways. There was... A lot of that land was uh, London Continental Railway land and network rail land. Freight yards basically. Yeah. Yeah. And that was actually one of the biggest jobs that had to happen to get the Olympic Park to happen, was acquiring the land from Network Rail and London Continental Railways. What's
1: it like now? This area that was this is the post-industrial wasteland full of fridges. Can they give us a little, give us a guided tour?
2: Okay, so you come out of the newly renovated Stratford Station. And you go straight through Westfield Shopping Centre. That's the first thing that you notice. You go through a big shopping centre. is on the doorstep of the park. You will then, cut having cut through the retail opportunity, enter through gift shop. <laughs> you will uh, cross over large open space that you will also, where you will see cranes. You will see a lot of work happening as major structures are being built. They're building an international quarter, which is going to be like Canary Wharf, same, similar kind of size that you have to traverse to get to the park, you then will notice the beautiful sweeping structure that is Zaha Hadid's um, London Aquatic Centre, um, minus the wings, you saw uh, wings on it, they looked like it was going to take off during the Games, it looked like a big stingray, um, it's now a very elegant design, it's a municipal swimming pool, it's operated by Greenwich Leisure, and is you, 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 know, you can go and swim there for four quid and local schools swim there. You then go through an area of the park for the South Park, You'll see the stadium straight ahead of you, which has just reopened. And it's now West Ham Football Club. It is indeed. And you, at that point, you're in a very landscaped bit of park, which is what lots of cities go for. I think something that you guys have covered previously, that what every city really wants is a high line. So what the Olympic Delivery Authority did was get James Corner to design the south area of the park. So it's... um a mixture of hard and soft landscaping, planting, playgrounds, an amphitheatre, going down towards Carpenter's Lock, which is a disused lock, part of the London Canal Network, which is in the process of being restored with the Heritage Lottery funding. You then sweep through onto a large area of basically tarmac and urban orchard, which is Mandeville Place, which is the Paralympic Legacy area, which is mainly where people are going to queue to get into West Ham Stadium, as it now is. Um, And then you go up and through to the north of the park, which at the moment is rolling fields, landscape, uh, bat boxes, beehives, wetlands, protected areas, and that's where a lot of housing is going to be built. You'll be pleased to know. One of the big commitments that the development corporation that now runs the park has is, is that the, the commitment is to uh, is to not just build giant blocks of flats, which you will see just sort of over the bridge in the former athletes' village, which is all now posh flats, but building townhouses, things that are more in in keeping with a London way of living.
1: One of the things I find really interesting about the the park it does feel kind of like a real place i mean it 's very it 's very new it 's like, it 's still a bit manufactured inevitably, but like you go there there 's like there 's there's, there's people from the local community use it there 's street life there 's restaurants. It does kind of feel like it 's sort of worked as a as creating a new bit of London
2: people who are familiar with the landscape of the area it is essentially an island you 're cut off from A lot of the world, because of the railway lines, because of the river, because of the canals and because of of the A12, you're cut off a bit. And one of the big parts of the um, infrastructure planning was stitching the fringes, creating these land bridges into the park and talking to the people who live at the edges of the park. The idea is that it's um, a place that people walk to. There's no parking, for example. There's no car park at the Olympic Park. It's not allowed. You're not allowed to drive there. It's a public transport or a walking venue. There's now on yeah, high bike stations all over the park um, and that's now and that's a part of the idea is that it's somewhere that you you know that you get to on your own steam there's a number of free things that one can do if you are you know bringing a family to it it's work as a as a public space now one of the things that will continue to transform over the next few years part of the plan is to build more bloody houses and that means getting rid of a lot of the landscape that is there at the moment but the idea is that it would be there will be green roofs and green walls, and the, and there'll be wetlands and a river running through it. But what it looks like in the future as a place, it's going to look very different. It's going to be a place to that where people live more and more, rather than a place that ever you know where you go and kick a ball around. Yeah, you know, one of the things that gets talked about quite a lot in when well, the rebuilding of the park is things like um, the South Bank Centre and Festival of Britain. The idea of creating a sort of an urban playground, a place that it that where you can engage, where you can play by means of engaging with the cultural life of London. That will happen there. The, um, the idea to build Olympicopolis, this new cultural quarter where there will be the V&A and Sadler's World. It's That's
1: something we had a piece on recently, actually, is the parallels, which, I, being an idiot, I'd never considered before, but the parallels between what's going on in the Olympic Park and the South Bank, which was all developed for the Festival of Britain in 1951, or, or, or even going even further back, um, South Kensington, which is known as the yes. Albertopolis... Which is all these museums and galleries and so on that were built after the Great Exhibition. And it's, like, it's exactly the same thing, isn't it? It's creating a new area of, a new cultural area on the site of a major exhibition.
2: Yes, and that's, that, and that's exactly the point. That's how these things happen. There is a big surge of political will to make these things happen. And it's very important to remember that no one wants these bloody things. Um, there's a very famous George Bernard Shaw quote about no-one wanting a national theatre. If you ask people, do they want a national theatre, they will say no. Give it 50 years to bed in, and people like it, they want it. And it was the same, if you remember, in the lead-up to the 2012 Games. When when it was announced that we had won the bid, the very next day was 7-7. So any any sense of optimism and civic pride, and an idea of coming together in a celebration where we'd be waving flags in the streets had a very different connotation we then went into credit crunch we went into riots we went into a period of no funding for arts for sports there weren't these big cultural initiatives happening outside of the olympics and the and move towards that and part of the the plan for the olympic games was also the cultural olympiad running alongside it which meant that there was sort of this beacon of something that was going to be happening. It was a place where there would be jobs and funding and new things, in a way that wasn't really happening elsewhere. Um, so it meant that East London was the place to be. And now that seems like a really bizarre thing to say because, of course, East London's the hip, happening place to be. But part of that was actually the all the regeneration work, all the effort that went into creating the transport links, the infrastructure, the shops, the studio spaces for artists. All of that was part of that vision for 2012.
1: So it's kind of worked as a way of, sort of lighting the blue touch paper.
2: Yeah, it gives you an excuse and it gives you an a, dead, a deadline. So if you think about, like, you like transport, you're going to be better at this than I am. The the things that got completed for the Games, so we've got, there was St Pancras, there was Stratford International and the Javelin line. You've got the East London, North London line, so London Overground, that all got completed for the Games.
1: So... Is is the point here that like often these sort of big cultural events are kind of used by governments as an excuse to do stuff that it's quite difficult to justify otherwise, even though it should obviously happen?
2: Yeah, it's things that would be nice to have and the sheer pressure of the Olympic Games by in terms of the security concerns, the number of people coming from across the world, the sheer amount of people who watch it on television, that's a hell of a deadline.
3: Fair.
2: Oh, they're way and Gatling got away brilliantly and
4: After the fanfares of the Olympic opening comes the most amazing performance by America's black streak Jesse Owens in the 100 meter. Faultless. Absolutely faultless. Nadia Comăneci, And 10 has gone on the board. And then here comes you, Bolt.
0: Okay, that makes sense. So to make politicians actually going to move on, you have to have the prospect of global embarrassment. Yeah,
1: I mean, Barbara wrote a piece on this. You remember Barbara? Everyone remembers Barbara. Oh, we miss Barbara. Um, Barbara wrote a piece on this a couple of years ago, looking at the Olympic legacies. And one of the things she found out is that the Russian city of Sochi, which obviously hosted the 2014 Winter Games... There was an airport that had been rem- that remained unfinished since nineteen eighty nine. It had been you know one of those projects I think that was planned in the last years of the USSR, and when that collapsed, then so did the <laughs> the project financing. And they finally finished it for the games because like suddenly you've got the worlds of media coming over, and like you have to do it. So I think it is often used kind of quite consciously to kind of force people over these lines.
0: Yeah. There is an interesting thing in in that piece Barbara wrote though, where she says. You know, sometimes you have to balance out, are you gonna have the wow factor or are you gonna have forward planning? And I know, know she says the the nineteen eighty four LA Olympics, they kept it quite low key, but that made it easier to turn it into something long term afterwards. Um so maybe that's another aspect of it. You you can only do one of those things brilliantly.
1: Yeah, I think that the the difficulty is a lot of the sort of the stuff of the biggest wow factor and that looks amazing in the opening ceremony or whatever, isn't gonna be much use to you, you know five weeks later let alone 50 years later so like um, the, the bird's nest stadium in Beijing is being uh, changed into like posh flats and shopping centre and so on it's like they're still going to do events there but you just never need a stadium that big ever again like the Olympics by definition is probably the biggest thing that stadium is ever going to do So, so yeah it is I think sometimes quite difficult to kind of match the sort of long term benefits with everything you need to make happen during the 16 days of the games themselves
0: so your conclusion is Olympics inefficient, but not as inefficient as doing nothing?
1: I mean, no, because we've kind of, what we haven't really talked about at all is the the fact that the International Olympic Committee is kind of a little bit dodgy. <laughs> we've kind of managed to, to steer clear of that entire problem. Um, and like, so I think there is because like particularly as because it's so difficult to justify all this spending in a lot of developed world cities increasingly the cities that want to host these these major sporting events do tend to be in places where the rule of law is perhaps not quite as great and so i think you know doing major construction projects in in countries where there's issues around corruption anyway often isn't going to end well
0: Oh, John, you wait until I make you talk about football. You're going to love FIFA. If you like global sporting corruption, you're going to love those guys.
1: Actually, I was in Doha in November a couple of years ago, and it was 30 degree heat. I just think, these guys are literally going to die. People are going to die during this World Cup. So that's, that's something to look forward to.
0: like me
1: in a given month over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites so if you're not looking on LinkedIn you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra start hiring professionals like a professional post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today
0: <laughs> okay on that cheerful note moving on
1: so if the Olympics are really useful as a deadline if nothing else then what happens if you're trying to do a regeneration scheme without a deadline let's have a look at Battersea Power Station
2: this is Houston change here for Northern Line
4: London Overground and National service. my name's Peter Watts I'm a, I'm a writer and a journalist and I've just written a book about Battersea Power Station called Up in Smoke the Failed Dreams of Battersea Power Station I'm very proud of that title I can tell already <laughs> took a while, it came right at the very end. <laughs> well, at least it
1: came, I suppose. So Battersea Power Station is this, uh, it's a pretty iconic building. It's, you know, it's on, it's on the cover of a 1977 Pink Floyd album. It is one of those buildings that, that everyone in London sort of will recognise on the skyline. But it's been sat empty for quite a long time, hasn't it? I mean, why, why is
4: that? It's sat empty since 1983, which is when it was decommissioned. Um, and it's been, it's been a ruin for various reasons. Um, the main one being it's a very difficult building to do anything with. It's, it's, it's very, very big and it has no sort of internal light. So there's, a, there's only a limited number of things you can do with the building, whereas you can do a lot with the site around it. But no developer was allowed to do anything to the site until they'd done the building first. Okay, so what, what's happening with it? Let's, let's start with the
1: present and work backwards. What's happening with it now? Is it, is it currently being redeveloped? It's
4: right, as we speak, it's owned by a Malaysian consortium. Um, they're backed by a Malaysian sort of pension fund, so they've got quite a lot of money. So it's a state project, um, albeit not the British state. Um, and they are turning it into your classic uh, contemporary mixed-use luxury development scheme. They're building lots of flats around the power station, which they're going to sell and then use the money to that to, to do the power station itself. The power station will become essentially a very big shopping centre, but there's going to be some offices, some flats and some leisure uh, components to it. But they're not the first group to have attempted this, is that right? No, no. I mean, it's a slightly uh, misnomer that there have been numerous people have tried Battersea. There haven't been that many owners. But there have been about four, all of which failed for various reasons. The ones before the Malaysians were Irish. They failed because of the, uh, the tanking of the Irish economy. But they essentially created the scheme that the Malaysians are building, which is the hyper-dense, very, very dense and they were the ones who they were the first ones who realised that the only way you could make this this site pay for itself as a commercial enterprise was by making it incredibly dense. Before then, it was owned for about 15 years by a Hong Kong developer who came up with numerous ideas, uh, like he wanted to turn it into a circus, he wanted to turn it into cinemas, he wanted to turn it into something that would have been a bit more public facing, um, but he never really sort of. Um, uh, he was. it was called Parkview the company and he was called Victor Huang he never really uh, got to a point where he was happy to, enough to sign off on what he was doing and before that it was owned by a guy called John Broom who wanted to turn it into a theme park he ran Alton Towers and he saw this as being Alton Towers on the Thames It's sort of
1: interesting the way the further back you go the sort of more left field the ideas were It kind of I think it sort of speaks to the fact that you know now we do just have this sort of shortage of land and housing and so on so like any big brownfield site that comes up, the first thing anyone thinks is, oh, we can put some flats and offices there.
4: Yeah, totally. I mean, you, you can could, you could map the sort of uh, preoccupations of, of uh, sort of urban developments um, against it. I mean, in, in 1983, the idea of living centrally in an area as isolated and industrial as, as Nine Elms was kind of laughed at. And, and one of the very first ideas, I had a competition to decide what to do with this building because it was listed they had to do something they had a competition and um one of the ideas was to turn it into a luxury uh, a luxury development with helipads and marinas and build all this nice housing and that was rejected out of hand as being completely inconsistent with what was needed in london at that point because what was needed was jobs this was the 80s when unemployment was high and the idea was that a theme park or something like that would bring a touch of kind of pizzazz to london but also a lot of jobs
1: I suppose 1983 was probably also about the, the sort of nadir for London's population, wasn't it? Which kind of had been falling consistently since the war. So.
4: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And this was not an area that people ever imagined would be an attractive place to live. You know, you're right by a railway line. It's, it's a very isolated area. You know, it's still not a particularly attractive place to live, to be honest. But um, such as the uh, the pressures um, on housing, that, it's, that it's, that's what it's going to become. But also, despite being right by a railway
1: line, it is kind of isolated isn't it it's off the tube yes it's not it, it, it's not by any sort of particularly well served no station Th- this
4: this was a major drawback for all the various um, plans um, development plans was trying to actually get people there because the only train station is battersea park which is a quite small station it's on the main line to victoria but it's quite small and there's only really one road and then you're kind of hemmed on by the river Um, And the railway railway line itself also blocks you. Every single developer has tried to solve that problem. And they've come up with various solutions. They've come up with bridges and they've come up with putting in new stations. And the Irish Treasury, the the group who owned it before the Malaysians, eventually said, what we need is a tube station. And that is what is happening. And that is helped by the fact that the American embassy is moving very nearby. So they're putting off this spur of the northern line, which is, I think, uh, the the sort of first privately built tube line in London for sort of ninety years or something. It is kind of mind boggling that the only way they can make this development work was
1: to effectively build their own tube line. It yeah. Was like-
4: Yes, completely. And it's a slightly strange tube. I mean, it's, yeah, obviously every bit of travel infrastructure is good for the city, but it's just two stations. It doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't connect to Clapham Junction. And that's a real, I think that's a real missed opportunity. Yeah, it it points directly at Clapham Junction, doesn't it? But stops just
1: like a mile short or something. Yeah. Like the busiest railway station in Britain, it seems very I think because
4: they're getting the private money to pay for it, most of it, as far as I can tell, they couldn't find anyone who would pay for the final bit to go through through to Clapham
1: I, I suppose also there's probably a danger if you do go to Clapham Junction then the line is full at the very beginning because that's such
4: possibly I mean I'm, I'm I'm sure they've made yeah. you know they've done their sums but it does make it you do you do kind of look at it and wonder quite what what's what what it does there how unusual is this situation
1: where sort of a major iconic building sits empty for three decades or more
4: right? It's difficult to say. I mean, I think it's, um, I mean, you know, there aren't many in London is what, is what I would say. And that's perhaps, you know, one, uh, one example to go. I mean, the problem is it was listed and most, most buildings of this size and nature, industrial buildings, aren't really listed. They're, so they're just demolished as every other power station in London has been apart from Bankside, which is now Tate Modern. Um, which has been
1: very successful, of course. It's like one of the most successful bits of, of Brownfield redevelopment yes, in, in London's history. I think.
4: Absolutely, absolutely. And when the Tate was looking for a new site, They looked at Battersea as well, but they went for Bankside because it's a lot smaller, it's a lot better located. And the fact that it wasn't listed meant that they could do a lot to it, as in build a new extension as well, which Mm. you couldn't do to to Battersea. Which, which of course, has just opened a few days before we're recording this. Yes, and is a very sympathetic um, addition to the the building itself, compared to Battersea's new buildings, which are um, pretty ugly.
1: So is the problem... Here, simply that it's a power station; and it was designed to be a power station rather than luxury flats.
4: Yeah, I think that really is a problem. It, it, it's like um, it's like listing a castle and then trying to turn that into um, into a shopping centre or into flats. You know, it, it was built for a specific purpose to to you know to, to provide power. The only real thing I think, looking back on it now, that they could have done is just have it as a power station that people could you know could go and look at and just turn it into something something for people to admire like people do like looking at castles you know have it as a landmark rather than having to turn it into something else and there were various schemes along the way that kind of played up on that there was terry farrell came up with a speculative scheme to turn it into a managed ruin where he was going to knock down some of the walls and turn it into a park and his idea was then if you were inside the park you would have still the walls around you and you'd still have that sense of scale because it is an extraordinarily big building and if they turn it to a shopping centre, you're not going to have that sense of scale at all because you're just going to be in a you know in a branch of gap. Are
1: there any examples of similar projects you've come across in your research overseas or anything that kind of made sort of pointed the way or sort of at various
4: at various times the, the different developers looked um, especially to America to to see what what was happening over there. There was a power station in. Can't remember. I think it was in Chicago that they tried to turn it into a theme park, and they looked at that as an example, but that in the end failed. They looked at shopping centres as well for this kind of just this general size, but these were, you know, they, these were different because they were they, they were built for a for a purpose, as in to be a shopping centre. There aren't that many examples that I could find of buildings on this scale. There's um, some of the mill towns in the um, in the northwest have sort of huge uh, factories and warehouses that have been sort of more sympathetically converted over time so there are a few examples
1: i mean is the h- how big a problem is it that you can't just like knock windows in the thing
4: is well the, they are knocking windows in the thing because um you know a lot of the problems now are, you know after 30 years wandsworth the council have had to sort of chip away at their own objections um including you know the fact that you, you couldn't you know that you're allowed to build on the land before you do the power station itself so they are putting windows in um, which is, you know, compromising the, you know, the, the, the point of listing it in the first place. You know, they're, they're replacing the chimneys, which is a sort of quite a major thing at the moment. It's only got one chimney, um, and there's a question about whether you, re- even if you rebuild these chimneys as, as in exactly the same way as they were originally, is it still the same thing? They're putting grass on the roof to make it sort of prettier and nicer. These are all things that sort of compromise its, its integrity. But is the
1: development going to come off this time, do you think?
4: Well, it's a, it's a good question. It's a, such a long-term scheme that there's going to be a lot of sort of ups and downs in the property cycles. And you have to hope they're going to ride them out. I mean, there's a real danger that if there are problems, the amount of property they're building, not just there but in Nine Elms in general, it's going to have an effect on, on, on prices at various times in the cycle. And you have to hope that the cash reserves in Malaysia and the will, are, are strong enough. Because I think if this one doesn't happen, there's a real real danger that they'll just give up on the power station completely.
1: Well, I suppose if if an organisation that has quite as much cash as, as the Malaysian government can't pull it off, then it's not kind of clear who can, is it? I mean, I think, who else is there, really?
4: I think exactly that. I think exactly that. I mean, you, you could say that maybe what they should have done a long time ago is actually let it become a, you know, a, national, a, a national lottery problem. You know an English heritage problem, rather than turning it into a you know a, a problem for private developers, which who have different, diff- different different challenges to me and different different desires. Peter Watts, thank you. Thank you very much.
1: So you remember last week. I did a slightly um, slightly pathetic shout out asking more people to send us them talking about their city uh, particularly if it's not a British city well it actually worked we've got someone talking about Singapore which as you'll know is, is, is definitely not a British city the only slight drawback is the guy doing it does have a British accent but
3: you know My name is Jeremy Brew and I'd like to talk about my city, Singapore. You can't talk about Singapore as a city without talking about Singapore as an island, as a country, as a nation state and as a political project. While Singapore has a rich history as a trading port in both pre-colonial and colonial times... It really emerged in its current form out of the turbulent period following the Second World War. It finally came into being, having been expelled from the Federation of Malay States by a unanimous vote in the Malaysian Parliament 51 years ago on the 9th of August 1965. So, by all accounts, it's a very young city and a very young country. On independence, Singapore, or at least its urban centre, was a densely populated area in the south of the island, surrounded by plantations and kampong or rural villages. The city was faced with overcrowding, slums, poor infrastructure and lack of housing. Through the 1960s, it also faced race riots between the Malay and Chinese ethnic populations. But as I look out across the Singapore Bay today from my office window, it is hard to imagine that city in the 1960s, and how it has changed in such a short period of time to be a gleaming city of glass and steel, mixed in with a lush greenery which earns its other name, the Garden City. The view from my office window is probably a good place for which to talk about Singapore, When I moved here as an expatriate, drawn by a booming economy in 2007, I had a clear view from my office to the oil tankers dotting the Singapore Straits. Barely nine years later, I now have to peer between at least a dozen high-rise residential and commercial skyscrapers to see the ships moored off the docks. There's an iconic triple tower building called the Marina Bay Sands, which houses one of the country's mega casinos, opened in the last few years. The port and its hundreds of dipping cranes are now no longer visible, not because of the obscured view, but as one of the world's biggest ports has moved up the coast a few kilometres, further away from the city centre. I could look down on a metro station opened last year, one of 20 such stations on an underground rail line, which was no more than a line on a piece of paper in a planning office when I arrived in the country. Giant climate-controlled eco-domes of the gardens by the bay, designed by Wilkinson Air as a tourist attraction and focus for appreciation of the environment within the city, were just a hole in the ground. And all of this on land which has been reclaimed over the last 30 or 40 years. The remarkable thing about so much change is the way that it has been centrally and successfully managed. And this is the same story of the country's history. If a map tells so much about a city, I would point to the four maps which accompany the Singapore concept plans. The first concept plan... Was put together in 1971, a joint effort between the Urban Renewal Department, the Planning Department, Housing Development Board and Public Works Department. There have been three more since then, 1991, 2001 and 2011, and each chart sets out a plan which guides the strategic land use and transportation plans for the next 40 or 50 years. Where so much urban development is part history, part happenstance, part planning and part accident. These four maps show a country and a city planned out meticulously and delivered and realised as part of integrated plans on education, economy, society. It is these which have resulted in the shift of the Singapore economy over the last 50 years through various economies from manufacturing, engineering and now incorporate tourism, hence the casinos, theme parks, tourist attractions and the Formula One race which have come online in the time I've been here. Singapore is often criticised for a political structure which has delivered the same party to power since its independence in 1965 and in the latest election in 2015 with 83 out of 89 seats. But it is the stability of the government which has allowed Singapore to take a long-term view of its development. What the next 50 years will deliver is unknown. When Lee Kuan Yew, the father and architect of the country and prime minister for the first 25 years, passed away last year, there was a realisation that it was an end of an era. With accelerating growth in the wealth gap, concerns amongst the population regarding immigration, affordable housing and so on, it is certainly going to be a turbulent next few years. How the city-state navigates that future and can adapt to it will remain to be seen.
1: Thanks to Jess for that contribution. Um, I'm going to say again, if anyone out there, particularly people who don't have a British accent, want to contribute to this section, then get in touch.
0: So in the open spirit of the Olympics, we decided to do another shout-out on Twitter and ask for your best Olympic stories and specifically what sports in the Olympics do you think should not be Olympic sports? And conversely, what would you add if you could add a sport?
1: I did say we should talk about planning, but no, apparently we're going to talk about sports, so here we are. Um, We've got this one from from Dan Anderson at 4th Street Consultants, who says, I measure my age by the sports in which I could theoretically compete. In 2016, I'm down to shooting and dressage. Sad face.
0: A lot of people wrote in to say what they call horse dancing is not a sport.
1: People love the horse dancing. I remember this was like, Twitter was obsessed with this for like three days, it was like...
0: But it's not... I, I don't know if it's because you have the horse doing the work when it should be a, a person doing the work, but people... It, it
1: should very clearly be the horse that gets the medal, I think. And then you get into, what well, if you've got a horse that was born in... I don't know if, if the horse was born in the US, but then raised in Spain or something. I don't know. Like, you get into all these questions about nationality. I'm, you're giving me a look like I've just been racist about horses, haven't I? I've just done horse racism. <laughs> I'm talking about plastic. <laughs>
0: I'm, I'm giving you a look like you sound like a man who could get into sport with a bit of work. Um, I'm
1: always really interested in the nerdy aspects of anything, though. Like, I used to get, like... You John? Yeah, I know. It's shocking, isn't it?
0: Rob Fuller wants to introduce the darts to the Olympics. Now, I have mixed thoughts on this, because I do not care about darts in any way, shape, or form. Um, I don't trust anything done by men in short-sleeved work shirts, particularly not throwing things. But... He then mentioned you could have kind of six pints before you started it. And, and drunk Olympics, I want to get behind. So,
1: I mean, where does drunk Olympics fit with the whole doping debate? Like, I mean, is, it, is, is, is lager a performance-enhancing drug?
0: No, I think you should get more points if you do it after a few lagers.
1: But when I used to play darts in the student bar, I used to not be able to do it until I'd had about a pint and a half, and then not again after about three pints.
0: Well, maybe so, it would depend by hmm. sport, and if you gave the horse a lot of lager... That could, that could.
1: I would definitely get behind lager-fueled dressage. I think we could do that.
0: It's probably animal abuse, isn't it? Yes. There's one here from Ed Jefferson who says that they should add house building as an Olympic sport.
1: I mean, that's just someone trolling me. Um, but Ed, Ed Jefferson wrote it's a very good piece about platform numbering last week, which you should read if you haven't already. Okay, the thing I found interesting that came out of this this discussion is like half a dozen people with Citymetric readers as they are told us that they used to be an olympic gold medal for town planning
0: yeah so simon alvey wrote in and said can you discuss the arts medals awarded in the early years particularly the time the stadium won which obviously piqued both of our interests
1: it's a bit recursive that isn't it the stadium it's happening in wins a medal for itself as it's- Anyway, All right, David Lynch. Um,
0: But so we looked this up, and um, it turned out this did actually happen. So there there was a medal for town planning, and it was won by a stadium in Nuremberg, opened in 1928 for the Summer Olympics. Um, It it was converted, so it's now a Bundesliga football club. Um, It has gone through so many different names, but because of its great planning around the city of Nuremberg, it was given a gold arts medal in the Olympics that year.
1: We should probably give some context here. it. So, like, when the Olympics were, were first created by Baron Pierre de Coubertin, um, he'd always intended that there would be more than just sports in there and there would be sort of arts dimensions. So there was a, originally, like, there were there were Olympics literature, music, painting, um, sculpture and architecture. But to try and get more categories in, they started subdividing them. So for four different games, you ended up with Olympics and town planning, which is, like which is just crazy. Um, anyone out there who is interested that was the Germans who particularly excelled in this sport which uh, took away four <laughs> medals from those games. Um, and this is like you know this is this is in the 30s as well so this really raises some questions about who about what was going on with the the town planning category there. Yeah,
0: genau. Yeah. So we have 19 well 1928. Um, oh yeah, that's 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 That fine. that that's fine but then yeah Berlin does win again in 1936.
1: Yeah, and you kind of think of the people who were doing the town planning in Berlin in 1936 and it gets a bit dark.
0: Well, I do, I do have to say this um, Frankenstadion in, in Nuremberg was, you know, very effectively reused um, in that it was used as a national socialist marching area. Um, and for the fourth Deutsche Kampfspiele, which is the, this kind of Nazi sports body event. But it, it's, now, it's now just used by a, by a Bundesliga club, which is a much happier legacy
1: that is nice
0: i'm hugely pro winter olympics by the way i think the winter olympics are better
1: okay do you want to explain that
0: i think they have better sport because i think skiing is very entertaining to watch and i like people jumping off things although this may be because i saw eddie the eagle last week so i'm currently really into ski jumping also i think curling is one of my favorite olympic sports because it is basically mopping the floor aggressively um which i enjoy
1: it's like the Olympic medal for street cleaning. It could all be around
0: city it, planning. It,
1: <laughs> okay, you're really going to have to. Stop I know giving I'm going to look because a... looks do not make good radio. <laughs> this is this is the thing you're going to have to learn. It's like as withering as the look is.
0: Maybe I can just say you know, every, you just, every time you make a joke about
1: you just go city planning withering look.
0: Yeah, no. I'll get a kind of thing yeah. like I'm a radio announcer. Um, but yeah, I, I, I genuinely believe that the Olympics should be both as banal. And as scenic as possible, so the Winter Olympics for me works, works much better. We did get a great tweet coming in from Sasha Fernando. I love
1: Sasha. What's Sasha got to say?
0: So he says the Olympics should be more objective, so we should have heaviest runner, longest javelin, most dives, loudest dressage. <laughs> <So> he... <laughs>
1: There were a couple of people who sort of popped up to say that, like, they didn't believe in any Olympic sport where there's a ju- where there's like a, a jury of judges.
0: Yeah, so gymnastics yeah. isn't allowed to count because it's not it's not objective. Like
1: long jump, like you can tell who's jumped the longest, but like, you know, how good was the horse dancing? Yeah, you
0: know, like, yeah. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I mean, I have some sympathy for that, but obviously, because you know, I'm from a northern household, I do think Torvaldine too. Bolero is the best Olympic moment that has ever existed, so I will.
1: Well, moving mm. swiftly on from that. <laughs> uh, okay, just to wrap up, one of the things I I do genuinely quite like the Olympics for all the sort of wasted money, for all the dodginess, for all the fact it's like this, this hotbed of, of, you know, it's a complete mess, isn't it? Um, but one of the things I really like about it is that there's a global event and it's one of the sort of few times where, you know, the whole world comes together around something. And that is kind of awesome. But is there a way of doing that without having to spend billions of, of dollars, like, redoing some roads in forlorn bits of cities somewhere in the world of review? Like, are, is it worth trying to find another way of doing this, do you think?
0: Are there kind of alternative models that people have proposed? Well, I'm
1: glad you asked. Yeah, so, so there are people out there who suggest that either we should just commit to doing it in, in the same city every year, which, like... Do, I'm not I'm not
0: happy with that at all
1: no no you, you're doing enough one of your looks but I mean like the, the city that gets mentioned a lot is obviously Athens because that's um, it, it was Athens that had both the original sort of games in the 5th century BC and then
0: no I'm not okay with this first of all Athens have already shown their inability they're to run to Olympics it, yeah. they're completely out yeah no that's ludicrous what,
1: okay do you, you have other objections
0: yeah Yeah, well, I I quite like the idea that you move around different cities and you get the... I realise I'm sounding like the Carl Pilkington of the Olympics here, but I like the idea that you go and kind of... You are forced to encounter a different city every four years. You have this global spotlight on on somewhere else and you're able to put across something of the national culture. And that, to me, is quite exciting. Impractical, but
1: fun. No, I, I, I take your point. Okay, the other options that get discussed are... You could break it up and do, maybe rotate it around four or five cities. So you could just pick four or five cultures you want to display, so they will get like a go every twenty years. So, like maybe one on each continent.
0: One on each continent. I, I mean, it's better.
1: Or, or the other one is you do a kind of um, disaggregated Olympics, where so you do like the big opening ceremony is in, and like maybe the athletics are in like a particular city every four years, but other sports can happen in the same city every year so like maybe olympic tennis would be at wimbledon every four years
0: i don't know wouldn't that create a problem for audiences traveling to it because you have people who do kind of go i'm going to go for the whole i think you're not a sports fan john i can see you you're already kind of going you you have no empathy with the person who yeah
1: (laughs) i mean like and and then like go and watch like all the sports i mean it's not it's bad enough that you want to watch sport but like you want to go and watch all
0: the sports but i wonder if people who are into the olympics kind of go you know i want to go and watch the whole season of it and all the different stuff and
1: yeah but that's that's a very small number of that's the that's a tiny share of the global one percent there isn't it it's like the the vast majority of the people who engage with the olympics which is you know billions of people probably are watching it as a global media event and you know in this age of 24 hour broadcasting does it really matter where the sport is being beamed into your house from as long as it's kind of all happening
0: Yeah, it it is interesting, and I guess then you can... That would solve my quibble with um, the geographical aspect getting boring. If you go, you could have 100 cities in every Olympics, more cities.
1: More cities is always a good idea. I think that's the lesson here.
0: Okay, well, if um, they can restructure it in time for the next one and this podcast is still running, we can... um...
1: Yeah, if anyone wants to uh, sponsor us to do a live outside broadcast from...
0: Everywhere. Everywhere.
1: <laughs> then uh, get in touch. You've been listening to Skylines, the Citymetric podcast. It was presented by John Ellich and Stephanie Boland and produced by Roy Phil Brown. You can contact all three of us on Twitter where there's a pretty good chance we'll talk back. Our theme music was Waves by C-O-R-T-R. You also heard We Are One by Vic All music in the show was licensed under Creative Commons. You can find Skylines every two weeks on Acast, on iTunes, or in the podcatcher of your choice. You can also find two more shows by our excellent colleagues, Seriously, and the New Statesman podcast. In the meantime, you can find all the stories about cities, maps, and geography you could ever possibly want on our website, citymetric.com. And since you've listened this far, leave us a nice review on iTunes, eh? Go on. We love you for it. Thanks for listening.
2: This is a Manhattan-bound B-Express train. The next stop is Grand Street.
0: Mind the gap. Chia's <laughs> home.